what I thought was, well, what, you know, that's not, who wants to read about my hike? Welcome to We Can't Print This. It's a podcast that tells you the story you don't know behind the story you do. My name is Eden Don. My name is Fiona McCann. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every week we interview a writer of some kind about the stories behind their stories. Ooh la la. And this week, no big deal, we welcome local, national, international, intergalactic, stratospherical, is it even a word? Legend, Cheryl Strayed. Boop, boop. Yep. Kind of a big deal. Anyway, before that, we just like land that little teaser on you. And before that, we're going to talk some updates because after all, this is our season two premiere. We took a little summer break. Did we, you miss us? I, yeah. Did you miss us? We were obviously just sitting on our arses all summer with cocktails in our hands. I you? was absolutely not. I was not. Not Neither were you. <laughs> but um, I completely joined the cult of drag queens uh, because I was one of the producers for a world record attempt to put on the longest drag show in history. Really, Eden? Tell me more. It sounds fascinating. Doesn't it sound it fascinating? Fascinating. Uh, let me see. 60 drag queens and kings, 55 MCs, celebrities, witnesses, the Guinness judge, nonstop, just news uh, everywhere, sequins, sparkles, sweat, drama. And there's definitely at least one Kylie Minogue song in there, isn't there? There is at least one Kylie Minogue song on there. Um, well, I'm glad you think it sounds fascinating because this is a good time to announce that we have a five episode mini series called slaying a dragathon about the making of dragathon coming out on september 28th i was recording for months in the lead up to the show fiona and our lovely audio producer were on site recording people down in the basement dressing room we have interviews with a ton of celebrities from saturday night live and rupaul's drag race and Basically, we had the best time ever, and it's the most exhausted I've ever been in my life. And no if you, sleeping. No sleep. No and if sleeping. you stay tuned to the very end of this episode, which of course you will because Cheryl is very sassy, uh, you can <laughs> you can hear the trailer and you can go subscribe to that own Apple channel right now uh, at It's Slaying a Dragathon. It surely is. Oh, sorry. I'm supposed to say wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, well done. Good Thanks. job. Good job. Um, and if that doesn't sound like enough, which honestly, we're really spoiling all our listeners. Uh, but beyond that, because we never do things by half, we also have our season two coming up where we've got fashion writers, cookbook writers, short story writers, award winners galore. Pulitzer, anyone? Pulitzer? Pulitzer? Pulitzer. We really discussed Pulitzer. how to say this word. And I decided to go with poo. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm saying pull. It's Pulitzer. Yeah. And we have Pulitzer people in season two and yeah. it's it's gonna be amazing it's gonna be amazing and season two also coincides we got the portland book festival coming up what will we be doing there eden portland book festival is coming up if you don't know it's a huge book festival in um november the first week in november here in portland where people authors come in from all over the country international it's kind of our jam, isn't it? It's a huge deal here. We will both be quite active in the festival. I am bringing back my live talk show, Bad Dates, um, as somebody who writes guidebooks about about where to go on dates, uh, where my husband and I interview people about their worst dates they've ever had. 
um, and in its own show on Friday, November 3rd. And Fiona has been one of our guests before and brought the house down talking about running across the salt flats of Bolivia, chasing a fella. True um, story. And, when he landed him, not to give you any spoilers, I just want you to know. And uh, it will be fun. So come to that. And then uh, the day of the fest, Fiona and I will be on stage interviewing all kinds of authors. So keep an eye out. We'd love to see you there. God, we have so much to announce. We're I know, I know. Today. This is what happens when you keep us quiet for a couple months. I mean, yeah, I hope you all had a great summer. Um, now, typically at this point, we do a little bit thing. All, as you all probably know, we'd preview some of the things that emerge from our interview with Cheryl, and we talk a little bit about it. By the way, I tried to teach Eden how to say Cheryl with the Dublin accent. Let's oh, see. yeah, to tell everybody, Churchill, <laughs> Churchill. I just wanted her to say that. She's trying to say Cheryl. Cheryl. Great, great. I just feel like it's I've had one too many Sauvignon Blancs, <laughs> and I'm like, Cheryl. 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 Um, now, but look, at it's Cheryl. It's Cheryl Strayed. And you probably just want to hear her because you may know her from her absolutely staggeringly blockbuster memoir, Wild, which also got made into an amazing film with Reese Witherspoon uh, and Laura Dern. Or you may know her from her novel Torch or from her Dear Sugar column mm-hmm. with the rumpus, which went on for such a long time. And she now has a substack about it. And then that became Tiny Beautiful Things, the book. And then that book became a very new TV series starring my best friend, Catherine Hahn. God, we love Catherine Hahn. Oh, she's very close to me, even though we, we haven't her. met. We love her so much. So we should just get on with that so yeah. people can hear. Stop talking. <laughs> Stick around for Cheryl's Dirty Joke. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome, Cheryl. We're very excited to have you in our studio today. Thank you for joining us on We Can Print This. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be with you both, Eden and Fiona. Thank you. Oh, we're so polite. We're all so <laughs> polite. Here we are, Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. Also. It's hot. It is hot. It's a uh, hot August day. Okay, I think we should just be honest and dive in because... We were obviously talking before we started recording, and I need to know everything about Catherine Hahn possible because she's <laughs> such a delight, and I have loved her for so long. Oh, I know. Is it? She really? I've felt this for a long time that she feels like everyone's best friend. Yes, she has that wonderful mix of really funny and really smart, but also always kind of messy. Which I love about her. Yeah, I'm I like, do yes, too. Yes, we can be friends. We can be because she's like all of us. She is a kind of every woman. And she, like, she's also kind of, she's, all of the roles she's played, she has this kind of undercurrent of feminism and a sort of boldness that I really love, too. Uh, Yeah, and she can be so dry in a way that I always admire, because I can't keep a straight face that long, Um, and I just think she's a delight. So how how did she end up coming to be part of it? Or I guess, should we back up to the origin of Tiny Beautiful? We don't even know what it is. We don't even know what it is. (laughs) Let's go back to Tiny Beautiful Things. It depends on what the meaning of it is. (laughs) Well, let's go back from Tiny Beautiful Things to Dear Sugar, I guess. Is that a good place to start? Let's go back to 2000 BC. Okay, okay. (laughs) If we begin with Dear Sugar, we, we actually have to go back to Wild because they're connected. And then in some weird way, we have to go all the way back to Torch, Torch. my, my first novel. So... I sold my first book, Torch, which is a novel, when I was pregnant with my first child, Carver, who's now 19, okay? Oh, wow, okay. And I was just a few months pregnant. I was so unbelievably sick and nauseous, and I and I sold the book, and I was excited, and I couldn't believe my fortune. And my the, the editor who purchased it said, okay, 
when do you want to turn in your revisions? I'll get you the notes soon. When do you want to turn in the revisions? And I said, I, I set the date for June 30th. And my son was due at the end of April. So he was born April 29th. And okay. what, I, what I thought is while he's like lounging quietly in, in a little basket sleep, at my feet. Right? I'll do all the other stuff when he's asleep. <laughs> like a kitten maybe. You know, he's yeah. just quietly, you know. I'm the only person here not a parent. And even I <laughs> even feel you know. like, mm, I don't know, girl. Oh, but, God. you know, as I say this to you, I realize that this this magical thinking is a kind of, is a sort of classic Cheryl's trade. And it's, it's what's gotten me into so much trouble with so many creative projects. Because I always think best case scenario. So what I thought then is the child will be born and eight weeks later I'll hand in the major revision of my first novel of course okay so it didn't work out that way I did finally get those in and the novel came out but by the time Torch was published I had two children under the age of two oh my god because of course after that first baby I had a second one 17 months later mm-hmm. and what I thought at the time was I don't know how I'll ever write another book yeah. Because I was so overwhelmed with how hard it was to write Torch and finish it and see it all the way through. And also how hard it was to be a mother of, of essentially two babies. Yeah. And where, Dear you know, gosh. where is there any room for my creative life? I didn't know the answer to that question. You created a book and a baby and a baby. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's, a, lot that's a lot of babies. 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 And so then what happened is I, you know, I'd written all these essays and published all these personal essays in magazines. And I thought, what I can do, since I can't, I don't have the attention to write a full book, I'll just gather all these essays. Most of them were about my 20s and try to sell an essay collection. Mm-hmm. And I pretty looked, good 20s for that as well. I did. I had an adventurous, wild 20s. <laughs> but as I looked at those essays, I was like, well, you know what's missing is my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. And so It I'm, wasn't even in the initial collection. No. I mean, no. I hadn't you written about it. You know what's missing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, come to think of it. And what I thought was, who wants to read about my hike, right? And my husband, had, Brian, had always said, from the moment I met him, from the night I met him, he would say, you have to write about your hike. I met him nine days after I finished my hike. You have to write about it. And all those years later, I was like, okay, I'll write an essay and try to sell this collection. So I started writing it. And pretty soon, I was writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And I realized this essay was becoming something bigger. And that's how Wild was born. So yeah, it, who wants to read about your high character? <laughs> but a that's, people, a couple you know, of people. I found it through writing, you know, and then I wrote Wild. But so, yeah, I mean, Wild got done. I finished the first draft and... I just have to pause you. Wild got done. Got done. a bit of an understatement. It was anyone passive <laughs> as your editor. I'd be like, passive writing. No, but also anyone who's ever written a book is like, nothing gets done. It was a gnar... Well, you know, I don't know if you guys want to hear the story, but, you know, it was a gnarly experience because it was one of those experiences that... You know when when something bad happens and you just think, okay, this is a disaster and this is so terrible. And then it ends up being the, the best thing that happened. It's the good thing. So what had happened is my first book, Torch, was published by Houghton Mifflin. And I really desperately needed the money that would come from selling the second book. 
And so I wrote like the first hundred pages of Wild or something, and 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 my agent took it to Houghton Mifflin because they had the right of first refusal mm-hmm. to my next book, and uh, they were excited about it. And my agent said they're going to make an offer, and I was just waiting and literally waiting and like, okay, maybe we're not going to lose our house. My husband Brian Lindstrom's a documentary filmmaker, so that means we were just very Two paycheck artists. to paycheck, Three and we didn't have a paycheck. We had <laughs> yeah. freelance. That's right, project oh, to gosh. project. Yeah. And she called me with what I thought was going to be the offer. And she said, Houghton Mifflin is is basically collapsing and they're not acquiring any more books right now. Which is kind of like, as she said, it's like a bakery saying we're not going to bake any more bread. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. The house has fallen down. Yeah, and I'm not going to be able to sell this book now. And they've collapsed. And what am I going to do? And what I did is uh, I just kept writing. I kept working on Wild, and a few months later, the, the good thing about about Houghton Mifflin having to say no because they were not acquiring any books is then I was free to go anywhere. And so a few months later, um, we took it out and to several publishers, and I had really the pick of many. A bidding war. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that and does feel good. So it was like one of the – it was a really great lesson for me to, you know, really keep faith with the work. So there was nothing I could do about the business of publishing, yeah. but there was everything I could do about writing my book. That feels like very good advice for many writers right now with the business of publishing to not lose hope and to keep going and focus on the work. Yeah. I mean, Eden, for as long as I've been a writer, the news about publishing has been bad. Yeah. It's always great. You know? I mean, <laughs> I've been a always... journalist a long time. It's never been good either. <laughs> Back when I, was, I, I, when I was on my book tour with Torch, I, I remember going to bookstores and, you know, if, if it was a very low turnout, the books, the bookstore people, workers would say, oh, it's because it's a sunny day and people just don't come into bookstores on yeah. sunny days. And then other times it, no one would shop and it would be a rainy day and they'd go, oh, it's because it's oh, raining. Booksellers and, are awesome though. <laughs> I know. I love that. And I was like, there is, there is some deep wisdom in this is that it's always, there's, there's always some external reason that things don't turn out well. But what you have to do is persist, whether it's sunny or rainy or the news is good or bad yeah. or the publishing industry is, is thriving or not. Your writing is about your work. Your creative practice is about your commitment to that call that you've decided to answer. And that has been a guiding light to me through everything. That's incredible and very difficult to pull off, I think. It's so easy to lose hope. I mean, we're all laughing about the state of the industry now, but uh, but also send us money. Um, but it's true. It's very difficult to keep going. I mean, people have to get a paycheck sometimes. They do. Yeah. And, and you know, when I sold Wild, and so we are winding our way here to tiny, beautiful things. But when I sold Wild, it was very much the ship was going down the ship of my little family, me and Brian and our little kids. And it was like, okay, he was at the time making his documentary Alien Boy, Mm -hmm. which was about um, uh, the death of James Chassie in police custody here in Portland. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which was really a project done basically on our credit card. And, you know, it was really like, okay, one of us is going to have to sort of give up a bit and get a job. And so Wild saved us from that. And I finished, yay wild. And I, but I, you know, I sold it and then I had to finish writing the book. And so I had about nine months to do that. I had these little kids 
everyone every month was getting like the bubonic plague and the, you know <laughs> oh scarlet God. fever and, and as soon as you said nine months i was like cheryl don't tell me you had another baby. <laughs> no for god's sake <laughs> she did this one was just of the um literary type that's right mm-hmm. but it was like you know everyone kept getting sick they and, do and every the kids gets and then you're just you and you're not and then you get sick yeah of course and so and i i'm gonna say this because i do think that there are some people who need to hear this some other some other parent writers who are parents out there and especially i think mothers so what i was almost done writing wild i was about to meet my deadline and actually handed my book on time and because there had been so much labor um, required in the way of mothering and everyone had gotten sick and I, there were all these delays i just said i have to get out of here i have to go away from little kids you know my kids at this point were like four and six or something like that at an age where I hadn't really ever left them for more than a night or so. And I have this friend, Jane O'Keefe, who lives way down in um, rural, like far rural Lake County, Oregon. Okay. And um, she and her husband have this big cattle ranch. And she always said, if you need to get away, I have places, you know, we all have like cabins that our buckaroos stay in. Yeah, I'm yeah. coming and for you, Jane. That's right. <laughs> I just told Fiona today that as the childless person, I really try and encourage particularly mothers. I'm like, I think it's good to leave your kids for a few days. I'm not talking about moving yeah. out of the home, but I think that when you're at home, you're always on, always on. Even if it's like, no, this is your time. You're never off. And so I think it's, and that's my role again, as the childless friend to be like, you can do it. You can do it. Just and I didn't weekend. leave my kids for a few days. I left my kids for a few weeks. Wow. I left for three and a half weeks. Jane's friend Sally had this this little beautiful little house. And it was so remote you can't even imagine. It was in, in Plush, Oregon. It's just this teeny tiny town that just has a, like a bar and a gas station. Wow. And it's beautiful and remote and there's nothing around but wild down and animals and cowboys. And I, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, it was so painful to be away from my kids for three and a half weeks that I, I what I did when I went away is I just decided I was going to actually try to avoid thinking about them. Like instead of dwelling on it, I was there to get my work done. And I did. I finished Wild there. Wow. Good for you. I wrote the final chapters. I read it out loud to myself. I cried. I walked. I really had, you know, a big experience. And I finished my work. Okay, a quick interruption here for the trailer of our brand new sidecast. Eden Dawn, this is Emma McElroy. I have a slightly bonkers idea that I wanted to pitch you. So we went from that to this. Finally tonight, right now we are about seven hours into a world record attempt by performers in Portland for the longest drag show ever, 48 hours straight. Hi everybody, I'm Peppermint. I think drag is healing, drag is freedom, and drag's under attack. Oh my God, I just saw Fred Armisen's ass go up Darcel's historic stairs. Hey, I'm Punky Johnson. I want it to be a part of history. This is Dragathon, let's get this record. Did I mention we'd never produced a drag show before? Hi, I'm Frankie Grande. It sounded like a toilet exploded, so that's my exit cue. Welcome to Slaying a Dragathon. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Cheryl Strayed. And what was beautiful is my kids were absolutely fine. 
They have a wonderful father. I did the work I needed to do. And there was no harm done. And I think it was a really powerful experience for me to say that part of who I am, like I am totally their mother. And I'm also a writer. And to honor that and to, you do have to buck against not only your own in, internal sense of like, I can't leave my kids, but the whole colossal expectation that we place on women who have yeah, children. Absolutely. And the guilt that you feel every time you make a decision that's for you. Is yeah. Astronomical. And I love the idea that the mental picture I'm getting of you writing this story about being alone in the beauty of the world and nature and you finishing that alone in such a beautiful place surrounded by nature. Like it, it, it just seems so perfect of a little bookend for that. Absolutely. And I, that wasn't lost on me. Yeah. And walking is such a big part of my writing practice. It's, it's what allows me to think when I feel stuck or it opens up the work in really powerful ways. And that's amplified if I can walk in nature. Can I also just give Jane a shout out because this is also testament to female friendship. That's and right. How important it is to have a friend who's like, "Come, I'll put Come. you up." Yeah, Don't and her friend just... Sally. Yeah. Oh, and Sally. Sally, Good job, Sally, Sally Fitzgerald. And yeah. Brian, because not and all Brian. partners are not that supportive, and that's a really lovely thing. I mean, I still feel like I know those fellas who talk, who refer taking care of their own children as babysitting. Yeah. Which is, I am not for that term, and that he signed up for three and a half weeks. Lovely. Yeah, it was. We did it. We, you know, we, Ryan and I have always worked like that as a couple. And, you know, I think that's so central to our relationship is supporting each other in our writing projects and, and our, and our creative projects, obviously his films, but yeah, it was big. And so I got home, I sent that book off to my editor, first full draft of wild, which just for the record is 20,000 words longer than the published book. <gasps> oh, I want to read those extra words. <laughs> so there's like extra words. Um, and I was just relaxed and happy and free. And I knew that my editor would be sending back notes. But for that time being, I was just like, I finished it. And I got an email from Steve Almond, the writer Steve Almond. Now, he at the time was just an acquaintance of mine. We had both taught at a writer's conference the summer before, and I had been an admirer of his work, a fan of his fiction and essays. And I got this email from Steve that said, hey, Cheryl, I write the Dear Sugar column at the Rumpus, and I don't want to keep writing it anymore. And you wrote me a fan letter. Uh, you know, you wrote to Sugar a fan letter and you're the only person who's written me a fan letter <laughs> which I thought he was being hyperbolic but it, later I found it was true <laughs> did you know and it was him no I didn't know Ooh. it was him I wrote him an email saying I I love your call I started reading this column that it would appear intermittently on the rumpus and I thought whoever this is I, I love this sense of humor and this sensibility and I just admired the writing and I said that and so in his email to me, he said, you know, I, you're right. I don't write it very much. I'm not really into it. And when I got your email, which is the only fan letter I've received for writing the column, I realized having read Torch and read your essays, you are sugar. You're the real dear sugar. Do you want to take over the column? And it pays nothing. Great. Like, I realized I would tell this story and people would think I meant that in a sort of like, 
metaphorical way. Yeah. <laughs> like, like hardly anything. It's like, oh, it's just for peanuts. No, nothing. I mean, when I say nothing, I mean zero. It pays okay. nothing. It paid in, as we like to say, good vibes. It pays nothing. <laughs> paid in good vibes. Exposure. And you don't even get exposure. No, it's because, anonymous. It's anonymous. because it's anonymous. Oh, my so God. So there's nothing. Okay. I will not get exposure or money. He says, do you want to take it over? And I immediately said yes. Why? Cheryl. What, I know. What was it? Well, You're not allowed to do that. If I was advising you, I'd be like, you don't work for nothing. <laughs> I know. And yet that would have been bad advice. Yeah, I was like, and yet. <laughs> I mean. You're getting a very belated paycheck now is how we like to think of it. That's it's right. A delayed payment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why right. Why did you do mm-hmm. it? I did it for the reason, you know, in Tiny Beautiful Things, I give this advice over and over again. I did it because I just trusted myself. I listened to what my body said. My body was was sparked. You know, I was I was intrigued I was excited. I was invigorated. It sounded like fun to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's all it would be. Like, I really did think, well, this will be an interesting experiment in me being kind of like, I, I really thought I could, I would just be funny. Um, it was a time on the internet when, when the predominant literary style was to be very snarky and cutting yeah. and witty, which I think of as very opposite of who I am. I mean, I do think I am funny, but I also have a sincerity, you know, and a seriousness that maybe the the, the internet writing of that era was different than that. But I said yes. And I did say, listen, I'm not going to be as funny as Steve. I'm not going to have his same style. I I am going to bring my sincerity, but I'll just give it a try. And what, what's so cool is when you are being paid nothing, you do you what can, you want. You do whatever what the hell you do, want. Fire you. That's right. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. So that's what I did. I began writing the column. Um, it was it was uh, March of 2010 is when the first column was published on the Rumpus that I wrote. Do you remember first that first one? Yes, of course. Yeah. What was that first letter? It was um, the known unknowns. It was a letter from somebody who signed himself Gump. And he had he had broken up with his girlfriend and then slept with her best friend and he didn't know what to do about love. Yes, I've read that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's funny to me, looking back, is so the last the last lines of that column, you know, I, I, I essentially say like neither of these women has anything for you and you know, essentially you need to let it go. And the, but the last sentences of the column are, and yet, and yet you are loved. And I do think that sugar has ended up essentially being about that yeah is is saying you know underneath everything underneath our suffering our struggles our conundrums our bewilderment if we can hold on to that truth that we are all beloved in this world that can be the light that guides us forward through anything Mm. but I think as well, you sort of broke apart a genre that we thought we were all very familiar with, with your responses, and you gave so much of yourself in those responses, and that was what felt so different. And I wonder, is that what, did you come to it thinking, well, I can be vulnerable too, or how did you decide, okay, this is my approach? I really just, I think of myself as an intuitive writer, and when I say that, what I mean is, I really go, you know, I let their work lead me. I begin to write and I see what happens. Kind of like when I said I thought I could write maybe a 20-page essay about my hike and then 
that's how wild was born. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't, it wasn't a concept. It was an experience of writing. And when I started to write the truth of my hike, I realized I had a story to tell and I didn't know it until, until I started to write it. And that's what happened with Dear Sugar too. This thing that I thought would be really funny um, and just kind of a little experiment in my life, a short-term thing that I, you know, it, it became some of the most important work of my life. And what I trusted is that if I gave everything to, if I gave all of my intelligence, everything I'd learned about the writing craft, everything I knew as a human, if I was as transparent and vulnerable as I could be in replying to these letters that were so bravely written to me, that something new could be born. I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to turn the, the genre of the advice column on its head. I just wrote essays that contained everything I had. But the thing I notice in all of your work, and I like, which makes me feel like I know you, and I bet this is a thing that happens to you a lot, is you clearly have a lot of empathy for humankind being flawed. Like that seems to be a thing that a worldview you hold is that you see that people are good and bad and deserve love and also, you know, screw up and all of these things. And that translates into the columns, which is not a thing that I had seen before with the agony ant kind of format. You know, I, I've always read Dear Abby and stuff growing right. up and it felt much more like you're wrong, move on. You yeah. know, it was a very <laughs> definitive thing. And to even end the first one with, and yet you are loved makes so much sense to me. Cause that sounds like you as a writer. And I guess I mean, does that feel like how you describe you as a person in general? I think so. I mean, I don't think I can be separated from my writing, which is like, I think, unfortunately, like I'll never get to retire. It'd be like, I have to retire as being Cheryl. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just like forever. I mean, there are really curses to this because it's like, wow. also you're never off work, you know, yes, yes. It's, 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 there's this always, it's, it's just so much part of me um, that I can't separate it from me. But I will say that that thing that you're talking about, I, I didn't know it consciously when I began writing the column, but now I can see what it is, is, is that that old format was, I think of it as vertical advice, is that I'm up here and I know the answers and I'm sort of superior mm -hmm. to you ethically, morally, whatever it is, and I'm going to give you guidance. Right. And sugar, I've always thought is horizontal advice. So when you say, I cheated on my girlfriend or boyfriend, or I messed up and yelled at my kids and, you know, or I have worked in the, this job that I've hated for 20 years and I regret that I didn't pursue my real dream. I don't say like, well, this is the right course you should have taken, or here's where you should go. I say, yeah, this is part of the struggle of being human. I've been there too. And I'm going to tell you a story very often about my my own life, sometimes about the lives of people I know, that will help illuminate your story, you know? And I do think that most of us learn best by telling stories. You know what's, what's, this reminds me a little bit of my mom who always had a story about a kid and it never ended well. You, instead of saying, don't swing on your chair like that, she'd be like, you know, I knew a little boy once. Little and Timmy O'Malley. Yeah. And <laughs> Timmy could never walk again, etc. And it took us until we were fully in our, 
adult lives before my sister was like, remember mom knew so many kids to whom tragedy befell? <laughs> I don't think it was true. And we were all like, <gasps> mom, but it's the same kind but of But you tactic. listened. I love that. Oh, yeah. The kid who was paraplegic after falling off the chair, the kid who ate something off the street and died. Yeah. I oh. remember his <laughs> agonizing screams and his mother couldn't help him. Well, we all... Amazing. Well, all of us listen to stories instead of lectures. We all do. So true. true. I mean, it's just, it, it's, that's just a fact. And, and I think too, that when you're telling a story, what happens is that thing you're talking about, Eden, is there is complexity mm-hmm. that it's, it's almost impossible. Maybe in your mom's stories, they were a little more of like the moral to the story. They, they so weren't terrible. complex. Yeah. The kids, it didn't end well. Did you ever feel cowed by the sort of responsibility of it all? Because it seems to me people put their deepest, darkest secrets, their struggles in a letter to you and said, tell me what to do. And I can hear myself thinking like, I don't know, what if I give them the wrong advice? What if I tell them something? And then did it ever, did did you ever just feel paralyzed by that sort of responsibility of it? Despite your training. And, you know, and I still do. So I, now I write the Dear Sugar column once a month as a Substack newsletter. And I still have that every month. I'm like, okay, which letter should I choose? And I feel this tremendous responsibility when I take somebody's life into, you know, into my consciousness. And I really do try to um, feel this sense of love for them as I write to them. But I, I do think that, you know, and of course I can't answer all the letters. There are thousands of letters I'll never answer. But what I always think is I'm speaking in my letters always to one person, the person who wrote to me. And I'm also speaking to everyone who identifies mm-hmm with that situation and and a lot of people you know what I hear a lot about from people who read tiny beautiful things they'll say well when I read the letter I thought well this one doesn't apply to me because this is about like somebody who had a miscarriage and I've not had a miscarriage and then they read the answer but when you think deeply and read them closely very often what they boil down to the questions at the core of those letters those situations are not so different you know it is ultimately very often about how to listen to yourself and then how to trust yourself, um, which is, of course, a very complicated prospect. Yeah, I know. Well, and I wanted to ask you, like, who do you, who do you go to for advice? Do you just <laughs> d- journal to yourself? Dear I me. <laughs> Dear I do. Me. Well, for one thing, I do. I mean, I think writing is a wonderfully therapeutic practice, I think. Yes. I, I used to deny that because as a woman... I, you know, especially like when Torch first came out, people, I would get this question a lot. And I'd always be like, no, I'm an artist. I always felt like that saying anything was cathartic or therapeutic diminished its artistic value. Oh, interesting. And now I'm like, I own it. I'm like, yep, it's, it's art and it also helped me grow. And it can be both things. And of course, I have a wonderful husband. He's my person. And I have gaggle, like a whole like oodles of amazing women friends and some men friends too. But I just have a lot of wonderful people in my life. I would like to know how people found out you were Dear Sugar. I remember it being quite the hubbub when it was unveiled, but I don't know the the exact circumstances around it. Yeah, which I guess this winds us around to. What was happening is I was like, okay, I wanted to unburden myself of the anonymity and Wild was about to be published then. And so okay. um, the month before Wild was, pub- Wild was published in March of 2012, on Valentine's Day of 2012, 
I went to San Francisco, had a big party, and revealed my identity as sugar. And what was really interesting about that is the next day, like, there was just every publication. Everywhere. Had, yeah, it was everywhere. And so then Wild came out a month later, and then four months after that, Tiny Beautiful Things. So those two books, you know, came out on top of each other and were sort of written in, on top of each other, too. Twins. Twins. Four months. Four yes. months. That's crazy. You do like to have back-to-back babies. That's, That's right. That's kind of your thing. Which, in retrospect, was probably a mistake because what happened... Close. Yeah. And what happened is, of course, Wild exploded. Uh-huh. So, you know, basically right when Tiny Beautiful Things came out was, like, right when Wild was, like, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So mm-hmm. I was going on my book tour for Tiny Beautiful Things, and the stores were full of people with wild in their hands and so I'd be like talking about wild but I'd be like and then there's this other book so it was always you know I mean it's it's done fine and had its own little life but it was always a little um tucked under how did tiny beautiful things come to be the show so when we were making wild which we shot here in Oregon and in Portland Mm -hmm. Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon and I just became really good friends and we wanted to keep working together and so we were talking as we were promoting the film. In my memory, we were in London in a, a hotel bar after the premiere of the, the London premiere of the movie. We were like, okay, what do we do next together? And I said, you know, I really think that Tiny Beautiful Things would be an interesting TV show. So that was the first time that we talked about it. I love it this just, little coven for you, by the way. This like the <laughs> three of you in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was like, what do we do next? You know, and the, the, it, it took some it took some time for that then to come. You know, like we all went off in different directions in some ways, and eventually Reese founded her company, Hello Sunshine. Mm-hmm. And she called me up one day and said. I have the perfect person, Liz Tigelar. And so we brought her on board as the showrunner and creator. And she is an amazing person. And so she and I just started talking about like what this could look like as a TV show. And so I'm on the project as an executive producer. And I was also in the writer's room. I was one of the writers on the show. I do think it's also just incredible that this project, which you took on that paid nothing, but it just spoke to you in some way. And you, it paid nothing. And now it's turned into a book, a, you know, TV show, a play. Like it couldn't be more lucrative probably. Yeah. And it also led to the Dear Sugars podcast, which I did with Steve Allman for several years for the New York Times and WBR. So it was, it, all I need now is a band called the Tiny Beautiful Things. And I've hit all the, all the art forms. Can well, I be in it? I'm in it. We have a surprise for you. <laughs> We're recording our album today. <laughs> or interpretive dance. We could do a couple of different things. I think we should be beat poets that do. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We can do the. <laughs> and, and then also, and then also I keep writing the columns. So this new edition. So Tiny Beautiful Things, like I said, came out four months after Wild. Uh-huh. But then what happened is as the 10th anniversary of the, both of those books was approaching, you know, I reached out to my publisher and said, you know, I've written all of these other columns. Like, why don't we do a, a new edition with some new columns? And they were like, okay, but we only have room for like, you know, a handful of them. But I was like, I could give you like another 20 or 30. But 
but it, the new edition does have just a handful of new columns and new introduction by me. So it, it then it had this like second life too more oh, recently, which I'm is kind of cool. I'm excited to read that one now because yeah. I have the old copy. Yeah, which yeah. Is you have Steve the Umland you have the classic, um, the classic kind of like coral red, but now we have this this little teal one with a sugar cube on the cover. Oh, so. cute! And your Substack people can still send in stuff then. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm gonna put you guys both on the list so you can get it, it, the Dear Sugar column comes out. On the last day of the month, every month. Ooh, I'm going to write in what to do with my coworker. Co-podcast host is more charming than me. What? And then see. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's just what? the accent. And you guys I'm... are equally charming. You have different Thank charm. You. Thank you. But it's true. She really gets away with that accent. And you'll see she hams it up. I do lean in to. a bit heavily sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't really it's think good. I have anything to say. How long have you lived in the United States? Since about... Six weeks before my daughter was born. So about 12 years. That's how I know. Almost 13. But then Argentina before that. So she, you were out yeah, of Ireland I've been for in a and But you haven't lost that accent. Well, it depends who I'm talking to, Cheryl, because sometimes I'll be having a conversation with somebody and I realize that I'm really speaking American. I'm like, oh, I went all in American. And then I'll get back on the phone to my mother and I'm completely incomprehensible to anyone here. So I do think it, it seems to, I'm very fickle. I do lean into it sometimes, especially when I'm on the stage at a drag show. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I wish oh, I had that. Oh, the drag show. That was so much fun. Oh, it was so much fun. You, you were both such heroes of that experience. What? You so showed up you. and we threw you out there and you well, told no. many a naughty joke. That I we did. We repeat here I on did. the podcast. I know. Is this a PG-rated no, podcast? No, not it's at all. definitely not. I've definitely avoided not. saying fuck on this podcast so far. Do you so. want to tell? You did very well. <laughs> we were do just talking. Do you want to tell one of your jokes? <laughs> Is there anyone that you would like to tell here that you told on stage? <laughs> okay. Well, it's, since we've all been like seeing the glorious Barbie movie. I have a Barbie joke. Yes, please. Okay, there are all <laughs> kinds of there are all kinds of Barbies, you know, right? There's there's like flight attendant Barbie and this this that and the other Barbie. But there's have you noticed there's no pregnant Barbie? Why is that? Why is that? Good question, Sharon. Why is there no pregnant Barbie? Because Ken comes in a box. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! There you go. It's good. I love it's good. It's very of the it's, moment. It's even of the moment. Yeah. I, it's topical, and people love topical. Also, I want to go as Bad Ken for Halloween. I don't want to be Barbie. I want to be Bad Ken. Wasn't the most like amazing? What I loved is Weird Barbie. Oh, oh. Weird Barbie was. I mean, Kate McKinnon's so brilliant. She's the best but, like, person. She the combo of the two things of Kate McKinnon as Weird Barbie was just a delight. I know. I love everything she does. I the do thing too. that I keep coming back to is the men playing guitar at you. Oh, which yeah, that is. Look, I've dated all of those men. Every oh, single one. I was every like, single yep, go down that yep. line. That and was like my whole twenties. Yep. I mean, that yep. is honestly that like I laughed the hardest at that That's because it was so at. on point. And then I love that it was that song that too. Song, I know because I have been trying to figure out that song for years because I like the sound of it, like it's a nice little poppy mm -hmm, tune. Mm -hmm. But what does this mean? I want to push you around. I, I want to take you for granted. Is this romantic? No, it's not. What does it mean? Evidently, the fellas think it is. I I have no idea. Is there anything else we should cover before we should we, before we wrap up? I feel like you have been so generous with your time. I don't know. What only else? Only said you... fuck one time. 
fine. I only said you want to throw it I out. I have so <laughs> many more fucks left in me. You have so many more fucks, not zero. So many more. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the classic thing. I'm 54. You're supposed to say I have no more fucks to give, but I have so many more fucks to give you guys. You know, on this podcast. Oh, hey, didn't know that was the sweet sentence I needed to hear. <laughs> we'll pull that out into an audiogram. <laughs> I do want to say that I have recently just reread Tiny Beautiful Things and I think it's a book that you can reread over and over and over and get something new from every time and it speaks to different essays speak to me differently now than the way they spoke Mm. to me in the past people should read that a lot everyone should have a copy well and I'm in the midst of this show and feeling so emotional and attached to everyone Mm -hmm. and then I think about that being like well yeah because a this is great writing and b these are real people and I'm just like oh my I just want to hug everyone. Can I right. reach in there we, and just start hugging people? We wanted it to feel really real. And and of course, even though the role that Catherine plays, the sugar that Catherine is, is not me. You know, we decided that her life would be fictional, you know, a fictional life. But what we also knew from the beginning is that she and I would share a past because I I I felt sure because I do tell stories in the Dear Sugar column about my experiences, especially as a child and a, and a young woman, losing my mom young to cancer, having a, you know a, a, an estrangement from my father who was abusive, growing up poor and working class in a rural environment, those things made me. Mm-hmm. So we knew that Catherine Hahn's character had to have had those experiences behind her. So in the show, you see these flashback scenes with Sarah Pigeon mm-hmm. and Merritt Weaver, who plays really, you know, a character very closely based on my so mom. Great. And so it's for me, it's a very split experience, even because it's like some of it, like when you say real people, I mean, all of it, we wanted to give the feeling of reality. But when I watch those flashback scenes and we see, you know, Merritt Weaver and Sarah Pigeon and, you know, acting really scenes from my life. Wow. And so it's it's such a surreal experience. And one of the coolest things is both Merritt and Catherine have been nominated for Emmys for their roles. And, of course, Laura and Reese were nominated for Oscars for their roles. And mother and daughter, mother and daughter. Wow. So Also, fastest way to an Emmy is clearly to play you. <laughs> so you or your mother. So or your mother. That's isn't it. that interesting? So when, when they were both nominated, I was like, oh, my gosh. So the actress is playing me and my mom now in, in both film and television from two different books have been nominated. And that that just moves me beyond words because, of course, my mother, who I think lives in in pretty much every sentence I write, never got to read any of them. And one of the last things she said to me before she died, one of the things when I cried to her, like, you can't die, you can't die. Because, you know, and of course, in my youth, you know, I was 22. So I was it was all very self absorbed, like you haven't seen what I have done yet. You, You know, there's always that look at me, mom, you want your parents to see you. I said, you you have to live because you have to read my first book. She looked at me and she said, Cheryl, I've already read all of your books. And I think that in some way, I think that I know we're laughing and crying here, but I think, I, I think being a mother myself now, and I'm you know a decade older than my mother ever got to be, I know what she meant. Yeah. Gosh, what a... What a beautiful thing for her to say, too. 
That you you just punched me in the gut almost as fast as the Matchbox Twenty song. <laughs> <laughs> I want to push you around, man. You I want to take it. you for granted. <laughs> you got me, and I will, and I will. Yeah, we need to. If now we know wow. that Reese and Laura got nominated for the Oscars, and these two are getting nominated for the Emmys, we got to get you a Grammy and a Tony, That's so right. we can go EGOT yeah. style. For That's right. That's why I said the band, guys. I and know. also, we've already got the name, The Tiny Beautiful Things. Yes. Right. I mean, come on. It's just waiting to be a band. Don't anybody take that. That's our band. Don't somebody That's get the our URL band. right away. I'm going to play the tambourine. Great. Okay. Shit, I was going to play the triangle. Are you going to sing? Can we do the triangle? Why don't I think that <laughs> she, Fiona could be our sort of brooding Irish drummer, bass player or something. I'll go for yeah. that. I mean, I yeah. never played either of those instruments, but, but you, that's fine. Also, matter. you're so... I mean, you're wearing even like the what, what was the costume? Eden, you're the lead singer. I'm sorry. I said to tell I was you. dressed as an off duty witch today, which is also <laughs> actually just shades of Stevie Nicks. So, Steve, yes. You I think are. you might be the lead singer. I know you don't want to, but this is giving me lead singer energy. You've got those that long, gorgeous hair. You guys that, don't you know. know what you're in for. I sound basically like a cat yowling. <laughs> that would be <laughs> my We vibe. can fix it in production. <laughs> we can fix it in post, as they like to say. We can fix it in post. As and also, like, you're not you're like you're you're just a cat mom. Like you're not a, a mom of humans. So you yeah. you have the kind of cool factor that Fiona and we're just done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm not um, done, Cheryl. Um. <laughs> okay, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> you guys are oh, all no. very cool. Um, well, thank you again to Cheryl Strade for joining us. Her website is CherylStrade.com, and you can find her on her socials at Cheryl Strade. That's it from We Can't Print This for today. You can see more info about this episode at WeCan'tPrintThis.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter and get bi-weekly culture picks, industry news, and on and on. Or also follow us on Instagram at We Can't Print This. We'll put up a great picture of Cheryl doing something sassy. And her band, the Tiny and her band, the Tiny Beautiful Things. <laughs> um, we aren't backed by anyone. Uh, we are also doing this for zero pay, but no doubt someday it will all come to fruition. We're just two independent journalists giving you an insider look at writing because we love it. However, you can support our work and the podcast by giving us a Hulu deal or becoming a monthly supporter <laughs> on Patreon. Uh, thank you so much to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to Dave Depper for our intro music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland. And a big thanks to our third office mate, Rachel Ritchie, for explaining to her uh, colleagues on a Zoom meeting why her two office mates were crawling across the shag carpet on camera. But that's a whole other story. We <laughs> lost our tiny SD card. Uh, if you are a writer with a great behind the story story, please write to us at wecantprintthis at gmail.com. Okay. Okay, though. Who's going to play you guys in the movie when this gets, you know, picked up? Or TV show? Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore. <laughs> okay. Both of you? You can't both no, have she's Drew. she's talking about me. That's my... Well, I'm like, okay. Drew Barrymore's going to play Drew. both I'm of Drew. us. 100% Okay, Drew and Fiona, what do you think? I mean... Now, Fiona, who, who do I you think get? Drew Barrymore should play us both. No. It could be short-haired Drew and long Hands no. off my girl. Hands no. off my girl. I don't know. Who'd you got? Who do Let's we see. have for you? Well, if we're doing flashbacks, get Saoirse Ronan oh, for Saoirse you. Oh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, yeah. I look Fiona. just like her. <laughs> With the right red hair on her, I think we can do it. Yeah, you get Saoirse. Yeah. You get Saoirse. I would love Sharon Horgan to play me, actually. There oh. you go. Sharon, Sharon Horgan, Horgan is the Sharon, best. come play me, please. Yeah, Sharon. I love Sharon. Yeah, no, I think Sharon would be a perfect deal. That's it. Drew and Sharon. There we go. Sort it okay, out, Drew and Sharon. I'm going to go to Hollywood and pitch it now. <laughs> <laughs>